day a frog went to a fortune teller to find out what his future looked like. And the fortune teller told him, she said, don't worry because you're going to meet a beautiful girl who will want to know everything about you. And the frog was understandably just so excited that the fortune teller told him. He says, well, when will I meet the girl? He says, oh, you're going to meet her at the first semester in the biology class, and she'll know you real well. <laughs> well, sometimes it goes like that. One minute you think everything is going great, and the next minute the whole world crashes in on you. Well, today this is the story of the biblical story of Esther. Esther was a story that, <clears throat> in fact, some didn't wonder whether or not to even put the book in the Bible, because it doesn't mention God, and it doesn't talk about a lot of theology, except for God's providence and his overstanding sovereignty over situations. And Esther, out of all the 66 books, it was questioned the most by Luther and whether it should be even put in the canon um, because, she, <clears throat> because of those issues. But we know through the understanding and reading of the word and understanding this book that God is in almost every bit of it. And we see that. As we read this book, and God is invisible, that we don't hear about him so much, but we see him permeating every aspect of this book. And it's unbelievable what God does behind the scenes, and there's tremendous reversals in this book. And he appears behind every aspect of it tremendously, and the theology is very clear, that God is behind everything that takes place in our life. Now, last week, if you remember, we were with King Azarias, who had a six-month party, and he brought in all the people from his providences to try to encourage them to stand behind him in this battle that he was going to have with the Greeks. 127 providences for a six-month party to impress everybody what he had. And one of the things that happened to him is that he called his prime joy, his wife, Queen Vashti, to come in and as he was drunk. And to try to impress everybody what a beautiful wife he had and what a good winner he was in a success story. But she would not come in. <clears throat> she, was a, <clears throat> she was a relative of, of Belshazzar of the, the um, uh, Babylonian Empire. And she had her rights not to come in even though it was a smash on the king. And so what happens is, is that he fires her as a wife. And he goes off to war and this Theopoly and he loses the battle. And he lost a lot of money and he lost <clears throat> a lot of stuff. And when he comes back, he's sad and he's missing her. And so his, basically his aides decide what they're going to do is have a beauty contest for him. That takes over a year and all these women are given all these beauty products for a year and prepared to meet him. And all the girls of the kingdom were to come before him. And one of them is this little beautiful girl that's Jewish by the name of Esther. Now that was not her <clears throat> Jewish name, that was a name that was given to her by the Persians. And one of the things that's interesting about this book, you know, this is why some people had a problem with it because they disobey God's law where she marries a Gentile. And also she takes the risk to go, if she doesn't get chosen as the queen, that she would wind up in his harem as almost like a prostitute. But with this great risk, she takes it. Now one of the things that we find here in the Bible here is that 
as she takes this risk, she becomes the queen, and she's given a special position in the court. And what we find at first here is that there's unfinished business with the past. Now, why do I say that? Well, after <clears throat> these things, King Azarias promoted Haman, the son of Hamadeth, the Agagite, that advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Now, this guy, Haman, was part of a group of people who came way back in the history of Israel. Back in Moses' day, they were the ones who gave Israel difficulty in the Exodus. And God had promised through Moses that they would be eliminated from the earth. And he promised that. And, and what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 15, hundreds of years later, the first king, Saul, has an opportunity to kill them. And you see, they come, these Agagites really come from Agai, who was the king at that time. And God gave victory over the children of Israel, and he told Saul to kill them. And instead, he saw all the possessions they had. He kind of liked the king Ag, and so he brought him in. And what happens was he spares this nation that should have been wiped out, and he disobeyed from God. And because of that, what comes back to haunt them now, hundreds of years later, as they're in Persia, is this man named Haman, who hated the Jews, as his whole ancestry did. And so therefore, he was the one who the king raises up in his court. And he has hatred towards the Jews already. And notice what happens in Esther chapter 3, verse 2. And all the king's servants were with him, and the king's gate bowed and made homage to Haman. And for the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. And when the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Who do you transgress? Or why do you transgress the king's command? And it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them. They told it to Haman. It's to see that Mordecai's words would stand and that Mordecai had told them also that he was a Jew. Now here we see the ancestry. Mordecai had no respect for the Agites because he would not bow down to them because number one, they should have been eliminated back in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And when the, um, when the Agite hears this, Haman finds out that he's not bowing, he gets very angry. And very ticked about this. And he has a hatred already to the Jews. And also to Mordecai. And so here we have this real difficult challenge. For Mordecai now. Because it's, things are going to change rapidly. Especially with Queen Esther being in the court. Now one of the things this teaches us about unfinished business. You know there are times in our life that God brings something to our account. He shows us things that we need to change. And instead of changing them, we put up with them, we put them down, we get them to the point that we don't deal with them. Well, the thing that happens with that is, is that they usually come back to haunt us. I can tell you situations in, in my experience where people were told by God, deal with this. And instead of dealing with it, they dealt with it and not dealing with it. And then it comes back up into their lives. I was talking, <clears throat> I, was, I was looking at a situation where a young man who all through his life did not deal with his temper properly. 
And he had many opportunities to deal with that temper, but instead he continued to use it as his manipulation tool. And I can remember several years ago, that young man and his brother were watching a Super Bowl game. And during the Super Bowl game, they both had pretty good tempers and they got into it. And the brother, he picked up a baseball bat in the midst of this fight over the Super Bowl game and hit his brother and killed him. Now that's an extreme case, but we see this time and time again in our own lives when we don't deal with things that God says to us, I want you to deal with it now. It's kind of like a funnel. And God is very patient with us in our progress of sanctification. I see it like a, 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 I see it almost like a funnel that we're moving more and more closer to Jesus Christ. But there are things in our lives that we still need to have changed in our hearts. And there are times God allows them to go, but there comes a point when God stops us in our sanctification process. Now I want you to deal with it. If he made us deal with all the things in our, our life right at the same moment, it would probably destroy us. But instead, what God is doing, he's a patient teacher, and he comes to us, and he brings us as this funnel goes. And for a while, he allows those things to go on in our life. But then there comes a point where he says, I want it now. Just like this fellow, I just gave you the example of that God had given him several warnings to deal with his temper, and he never did. And because of it, the outgrowth of it was horrible. Well, the same thing happens when we have things in our own past. I was thinking of about a young man that used to run the hallways here, that his father left him <clears throat> when he was young, and that how he troubled and struggled with being feeling like a big man because another thing was he was small in his stature. And so he struggled with that too, and, and, and he kept on trying to do bad things so people would pay attention to him, and that he looked like this tough guy. And I remember dealing with him three or four times and helping him get free from the law and get himself some help, but he never took the help. And then tragically, after he graduated, he, two times he went to jail as a minor, and then two times he went as an adult. And the last one was the saddest one because he got into a situation where he was trying to act like a big man for a drug dealer and wound up throwing a gun into the wrong house and winds up killing a woman, and now he's doing life in our, our, our uh, institution of uh, uh, corrections because he refused to deal with it. Now, folks, God brings situations in our life. There's things in our lives. I know a woman who she was constantly warned, and she knew she struggled with it, but never dealt with it positively. And she had this critical spirit that was constantly critical of everybody and anything and anything that was happening. To the point where her fi husband finally got tired of it and walked out on her. Her children barely go to see her. Why? Because everything they do, she had a critical comment about. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a, a spirit where we can see things and help people. But when we do it to manipulate and have control and power, and it continues on that sooner or later people start turning off their minds and their lives to that person. And that's when she came and she was lonely. And she said, nobody wants to be by. I wonder why. Because she refused to deal with something that God had brought up to her several times. And here we see this unfinished business Israel didn't deal with came up to loom largely. And what we have here now is 
the Jews and the Jews that went back after they were set free by the Persians, only 60,000 went back to Jerusalem and to Israel to rebuild it. Over a million still were out there and they were not, they were comfortable with Persia and living in Persia. And so what happens here, Mordecai gets into this with this fella, Hanan, and Hanan also has uh, now been made a, a top official in the government. And what he's going to do is he's going to underneath turn the traffic so that the Israelites will be destroyed that are still out in Persia. And <clears throat> he hated the Jews. He wanted them exterminated. He did not care about them at all. And we see the same thing in our world today, folks. He made it so that what is going to happen now, there are people in our country and in our world that do not want God's will to God be done. And what happens is in our world, we have people who try to circumvent the Christian faith that we have, to circumvent the faith. That, why is it that other faiths can very easily proclaim in, 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 this, in the public sector, but for Christians, it's looked down upon? I can tell you of institutions where their darkness continues to try to destroy the light in our culture. How many times have you heard people talking about the problems that are in the Sudan of Christians being sold as slaves? You don't hear that. Why? Because the world is not worried about that. We hear maybe some little about the persecution of Christians in China, but very little. But we see that they are closing down again China to Christianity. And how many times have you heard about ISIS who have killed Christians? We've heard of killing by ISIS, but not about Christians. And here we have to be told by the scripture number one. And this is what caught the people off guard. They were very comfortable in Persia and they were having a good time of life. Little did they know that this man, Haman, was working his way politically to destroy and to shut down the Jews and to have them killed on the spot. The Bible tells us to be aware of these things. Don't think we're isolated in this country. Therefore, take on the whole armor of God, Paul says. We need to be prepared because there are going to be a day that the possibility may exist in this country that we as Christians will be shut down. It's already happening in our dear friends up in Canada that some churches are being, because of certain things they raise from the pulpit that are now off limits and their free speech has been cut. How easy it is to get that to be a problem in our country. For instance, your faith may be tested. You remember, remember when we were kids and we used to play hide and go seek and you count down, Five, four, three, ready or not, here I come. Well, this is what's happening in our country today. I can tell you instances in our country and in our city and in America today where we're being suffocated. They're trying to suffocate the Christian worldview out of the picture. And we're, we're made, and what happens is the first thing that gets done is they demonize you as a Christian and me as a Christian. And then they will begin taking things away that we take for granted and that our early fathers who formed the Constitution took for granted that are now being taken away. I can tell you, 35 years ago, in New Jersey, I was called by the superintendent's office of the school system 
And the, they, this, this uh, secretary said, Pastor Dave, we've heard so many good things about you. We know you're working with the kids with the drugs. You're doing so much with the kids on the street and kids in our school system that we would like you to come pray at our graduation. And I said, great, I'd love to. A few minutes later, ring, 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 ring. Hello. The superintendent wants you not to say the name of Jesus. Well, I'm sorry, I, that's who I work for and I've got to do that. I name him because he's my God. He said, well, then the superintendent said, that's thank you for your being willing to do it, but we're not going to want you to do that. How many, 30 years later now, how many of you gone to a graduation lately for public institution and there's been no invocation or no benediction? You know why that is? Closing us down. Closing the world down. I can remember raised in a small school in New Jersey. And guess what? Where did I learn how to say the Lord's Prayer? Where did I learn to recite the 23rd Psalm? Where did I learn to recite the 100th Psalm? Public school. Do you remember when Madeline Mary O'Hare, one little voice, got that shut down? I remember being in fifth grade right after fourth grade. We learned all those things and we were about ready. And we couldn't do that anymore in our school. Taken away. I can tell you people who used to work at Boeing. We had an elder on our board who was a head engineer at Boeing. And one day, Human Resources called him up and said, we need to talk. What about? Well, your Bible on your desk is offensive to somebody, and we're going to ask you to take it off. This is Wichita, Kansas here, a place in the Midwest, conservative Midwest, and here it is. Our rights are being taken from us. And if you say anything contrary to the society that we're in, you're violating my civil rights. This is what's going on in Canada right now. Preachers are in jail because they make mention of homosexuality in their sermon and some of them are jailed. This is closing down the mind of America and the free country and taking away Christianity out of the situation. And it's very subtle. This is what Hatchet did. I mean, this is what Hammond did. He did it very diabolically, very quietly, and very hidden behind the scenes. And his plan was, as he got raised up, and Hammond saw that Mordecai did not bow out and pay to him homage, Hammond was filled with wrath, and he was disdained to lay hands on Hammond, uh, Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. And instead, Hammond sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the king of Assaroras, the people of Mordecai. Now the thing is, Haman never tells the king who this group of people is that worship a different God and that don't follow and don't bow down like this guy Mordecai. He doesn't fill them in who they are. Why? Because he probably knew that the king would have a problem with it. But instead, he gets them to sign this edict not thinking that he's going to exterminate the Jews. And he rolls the dice. 
You see, the Jews today, there's one festival that they don't have in the books of Leviticus. We have the Feast of Trumpets. We have all those feasts that are in the book of Leviticus. But this one, the Feast of Purim, is, comes because of the deliverance that Mordecai and Esther brought to the chief people of, of Israel. And notice why it's called Purim, because it's the roll of the dice. He tries to roll the dice. You know, uh, this is begging on chance when to do the killing of the Jews, when to start this. And so in the first month of the month of Nisan, in the 12th month of King Azarus, the cast, they cast the purr, which is cast the lot or shot the dice, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And what happened was, it happens right during Passover. So here we have God's deliverance, and here is the extermination of the Jews all getting ready to go on at once. And you see, this is a whole attempt by Satan himself, not only in America, but all throughout the world to stomp out God's wonderful word to the world that frees. It's demonic. And what he does is this demonic thing that happens is he wants to exterminate the Jews. Now this begins way back in Genesis where we see how God protected that little baby in a basket who wanted to destroy the work of Moses was to do for the Israelites. We see this again in the book of Daniel when they try to exterminate the Jews and they throw them into the fiery furnace and they are freed because God protects them. We see it in the book of Acts where they try to exterminate the preaching of the gospel and the men say to them, we must obey God rather than man. That's the civil disobedience that they showed. They respect the people in charge, but they told them that they were not gonna stop preaching the word of God. That kind of stuff needs to take place in our world today. Martin Luther stood up and he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I cannot do anything otherwise. Now Mordecai wasn't perfect. He had a lot of shortcomings and he wasn't very religious, but God was using him and using Esther to take this cancer that Haman had to want to destroy the Jews and his hatred and turn it around and try to bring God's justice to the world. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in that 12th day, King Azarus cast the poor. Then in verse nine, it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do not work, who do the work and to bring it into the king's treasury. Here he fattens them the deal. Not only does he get the king to come on board with him, not knowing what group of people are going to be eliminated, the king foolishly agrees to. But notice what he does. He asks for his permission, but sweetens the deal by saying, I've got some bucks for you. And if you do this, I'm going to give you. And he was pretty wealthy. But folks, this is not where he was going to get his dough from to feed the king. He was going to get the dough from killing the Jews and taking all the booty from them and bringing it into their coffers and paying the king two-thirds of the 
national gross product that year. They had 15,000 talents of silver that ran that country that year, said Herodias, the, the historian. But they were, he was going to give 10,000, and he was going to get it from Now, this is nothing new to us, folks. Have we not seen this in our own age? Have some of us seen the History Channel and what we've seen? How wonderful it is to pump that money into the system. And even some people, even some politicians, get money also for their own wealth preservation. Hitler, World War II. Guess where he got a lot of his money from when he went through the nation and took the Jews off to, to the camps? Got it from the Jews. There were pictures, gold, silver, that they confiscated from these Jewish jewelers and from these Jewish merchants so that they could, could make more money for their machine. And also, some of them even took these beautiful art and put them into their own living rooms that were very valuable. And you see, all of this is taken by this plan that he could get the Jews exterminated. And what happens is the word starts to spread. Mordecai finds out about this. And he realizes what is at stake here. The whole generation of Jews. And what we see is the devil again is at work trying to thwart God's will in the nations. And was he trying to thwart Jesus Christ coming to the world to save the world because he was of the line? And was he thwarting that also? Today the Bible says to us, beware. There's all kinds of conspiracies and stuff that go on that we don't even know about. We need to pray for our leaders and the deals that they get into. Think about it. How many people are being built out of money in our nation by people who will scam them? I was talking to a detective the other day and a lady got scammed of $10,000 with this promise that she would get this certain coin. And here he had her take and, and make cards so that they can't be traced and she lost $10,000 because this guy had contacted her on the internet and promised her these bitcoins. Now that kind of stuff goes on in our nation. How many things that are going on right behind the scenes right now in international time with Putin and with China that our leaders may not be even aware of what's going on or they think they do. And they're being scammed. And how many of them are lining their pockets? We don't know. We sure do have heard things that this thing has happened with certain personalities in our nation. How easy it is to get scammed. The Bible says Satan can put blinders over the eyes of good and righteous men. And the question comes. Edmund Burke, who was a legalist, a law professor in, in England who said, what happens? What will the righteous do, the Bible says, when good men refuse to do anything and to question this stuff? We need to make sure we pray about these traps that these other countries can either get us into and that we can't get ourselves out of. But here comes the deal. 
you know, slap of reality. Esther, no, is taking care of herself. She's the queen's wife. She's having life real good. She's doing all these wonderful things. But she's not aware of the pearl that her own life is in. And that's why Mordecai goes at the city gate where everybody sees as they're going into the city. And Mordecai learned what this plan was and how it had been fattened. And he says, I've got to get the word out. And he does. And when Mordecai learned what had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He cried out. Why? Because he knew what was going to happen. And he knew Queen Esther had not a clue. And Queen Esther was not informed. She was too busy taking care of her good old life. She was having a great time. A lot of people in Persia were having a good time as Jews. They had no clue that it was going on. And that's why Mordecai comes out. And what does she do? She sends him clothes. She says, look. You're an embarrassment to me. And Mordecai told the man that came out. He informed him what was going on. And the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasury to destroy the Jews. He wants her because he knows she's got the in with the king. She's the one who can step up and do something. And so he calls on her. And she basically sends him nice clothing, thinking that'll keep him quiet. But he says, sister, this is bigger than you. This is bigger than me. You need to act because we're going to die. And then she gives this excuse why she can't step up to the plate. She says in verse 11, all the king's servants and people of the king's providence know that any man or woman, even the queen, who goes into the inner court of the king, who has not been called, he has but one law to put them to death except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not called to go into the king for 30 days. She's making excuses why not to act. And Mordecai knows she's got the end. Please do it, he's calling her to do it. And she's no hero, folks. What happens is she's a reluctant hero because he puts pressure on her to step up to the plate and take care of business and let the king know what he signed even though he doesn't know what he signed. And so he says to her, put up or shut up. And Mordecai told the answer to Esther, do you think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than any other Jew? And if you remain completely silent at this time. Relief and deliverance will arise from, for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have been come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What a powerful message he gives to Esther to get her to step up to the plate. Why? Notice what he says to her. You think you're going to escape it just because you're in the king's court? You're a Jew and you know it and you haven't told the king that you're a Jew. And when that happens, no matter what, the decree is going to follow through and you're going to die. Very settling to her. 
And then he says, if you don't say anything, how do you think that's going to go with your dad and your sisters and brothers, family? Because your father's house is going to perish. They're not going to save them. They're going to die just along with the rest of the Jews. You get it? You get it, Esther? You realize what you're here for? And then he says, Esther, how do you think why you're the queen? Why God got you into this position as queen of this nation? Was it just for you to look good and for yourself? Or were you put in this position for such a time as this? This is your opportunity. This is your one and numerous occasion to make a difference. Why don't you do it? No matter where you are and where I am, folks. There are times God calls us to be in positions that we're in for purposes that we don't always understand. Sometimes we ask God, God, why did you put me in this place? Why did you put me in this position? I had a man the other day in my Bible study on Friday morning. And one of the discussions that he was talking to us about because he had a dilemma. Sandy and I just went through this dilemma about two months ago. And that he was invited to this gay wedding of a cousin. And he said, what do I do? Do I go to the, the wedding and tell them that I love them, but I disagree with what they're doing? Or do I not go to the wedding and show them that I'm not going to support this because I disagree with it, even though I love them very dearly, and we all know. When we make those kinds of decisions, and we care a lot about those people, and we love them, but they look on it as you are rejecting them. And you're rejecting them as a person. And they will maybe drop your friendship. Or they will call you by names, different things, like a homophobe. Or that you're a person who is prejudiced. No. We are people who love people who are concerned about them eternally. We love them more than they love themselves. They don't understand that. And there are times when we may get wind up in the shortness. We may be getting kicked off. And yes, we still love them. We accept them as they are. We also want them to know the truth. That's what sets us free. Not being nice and comfortable with them. They need to know the truth. And that we have opportunities and lovingly try to help them to see. And that's hard, folks. I know it. Have you ever had a time when the first time you shared the gospel with somebody that you loved and you cared about them? And they're saying to you, well, I have my own religion and I love God. And who are you to tell me that I need Jesus? Well, you do. Well, you just keep that to yourself. Okay. I hope it works out for you. It did not. We know the Bible is very clear about these things. And we want them to know the truth and be set free.
We care about them very much. And I know they misunderstand that because they say you're rejecting them as a person. No, we're not. They see it that way. And we need to continue to lovingly affirm them that we love them. But they also need to understand the truth. This is hard, folks. You know it. It's getting deep under the skin. It's in a spot that's very delicate. And yet we care about them. And there are moments that you and I have to step up. I can tell you times that I've had to step up. When somebody was having an affair and I became aware of it. And I don't like to be the bad guy. I like to be liked by people. But they need to know what they're doing, what they're covering from society and from their friends is not right. God is not pleased with that behavior. I can remember several times, one in particular, I was downtown at a restaurant with this gal and I told her what I had heard and what I had known. And I thought she was going to pick up the bowl of spaghetti and throw it at me. She was angry with me. And I cared a lot about her and I tried to express that to her. I was concerned for her children. I was concerned for her and for her husband, what this was going to do. And with all the pleading, about six years, she just would not talk to me, left the church, was angry. But thank the Lord she came around. But it took six years later in the divorce that she realized she made a huge mistake. And folks, that sometimes is what happens. This is what happened in our society right now, folks. You and I are going to have to wait at some point in time with some of the values that are going on, and we're going to see people's lives implode because they haven't listened to the word of God. They haven't obeyed God and trusted him in their time of difficulty. And they hadn't had people who would step up and lovingly encourage them to walk worthy before the Lord. See, this is the sad part about it. And to try to help them not have to be broken by God or even God just backing away and letting their circumstance destroy their lives. It's truly tragic when that happens. And that we can still show them we love them when we pick them up after their brokenness and encourage them to walk in a way that's pleasing in God's sight. You see, God is serious about what he says. And there are times that we're going to be put in unpleasant situations. And I know we want to avoid it sometimes. But God has put us there for a purpose. And look at what Esther responds in her situation. She knows she can go to the king and get killed if she, he doesn't give her the right hand of scepter. But notice what she does. She says, Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews. Now these people were not a praying people. 
who are present in Sushan and fast for me. Prayer and fasting. Neither eat nor drink for three days and nights and day. My maids and I will fast likewise. We're going to pray so hard because this is a difficult thing to go before the king and I could lose my head. But the righteousness needs to be told and the truth needs to be told. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. She's breaking the law to save the people. And notice what she says, if I perish, I perish. But she's doing right in God's eyes. She's stepping up. Like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king says, if I throw you into the furnace, you're going to burn up. He says, will God deliver you? If God wants to deliver us, he can. And if he doesn't, he can't. He doesn't, if he doesn't want to, he doesn't have to. But we're going to do what's right in his eyes. This is what we're called to do, folks. Think about Martin Luther King. Risking in such a bad neighborhood. Risking the great oppression and rejection that the blacks were experiencing in this country still in the 60s. It chose to do a civil rights move. Now Martin Luther King was no angel. He had reverend in front of his name, but he was not a great moral character. But he had been called to do what was right and to rebuild relationships in this country. And the atmosphere in this nation was ugly at that time. The riots in the 60s were great. But he risked because God had a calling on his life. And it was worth taking. How many times have you been called to take a risk like that with somebody personal on a big situation? 31 years, 32 years ago, Sandy and I made a decision. We felt called by God to go to Kansas. Never been to Kansas. Never understood what Kansas was like. And we left our family, our nieces and nephews, our churches, which we had built many deep relationships with drug addictions and stuff like that and helping people come to know Christ come to Kansas and what a joy it's been these 31 years but let me tell you something it was a risk we didn't know what was going to happen here there were days that I can remember and I'm thinking this is going to fail God why did you call me here all those questions that I felt in fact I, I felt that way the first at, right after we made the decision to come out here. <laughs> I didn't know how to start a church. I could rebuild one in the city. But I didn't know how to start a church. And so I went to Baltimore to take a three-day course on how to start a church. <laughs> While we were there, our car was broken into. Stuff was stolen out of the car. We go to stop by my uncle in Pennsylvania and my aunt falls off a slide and breaks her arm. We get back into the car with the kids and we head to St. Louis and as I pull into St. Louis, East St. Louis, the motel there, I walk into the lobby and there 
is the guy who's to take care of our reservations is tied up and had just been robbed. I'm thinking, Lord, what is going on here? He says, go down the road. I'll, I'll, I'll get your reservation at this other place. And he did. And then we get into Kansas. Second day. Daughter's birthday. We're moving into the house. And a tornado hits Andover. And I'm going, what in the world have I done? <laughs> I'm thinking, God, what are you doing? But what a wonderful thing God has brought. When you risk God. That you put yourself out there, whether it be in the personal relationships or in projects or things for your family. God will honor it as you do it in faith. That He will supply your needs. One of my favorite poems that I often use to remind myself this is a faith journey and that I need to follow God's lead and do what is right in his eyes. It comes from Robert Frost. I got it when I was in college and has meant the world to me. And the, the poem is called Two Roads. And it goes like this. Two roads diverge into a wood. And I took the road least traveled. And that has made the difference. And that's what happens when we do that and follow God's will. Let's pray together. Lord, right now, we come to you. There are challenges in our lives. And there are going to be challenges ahead of our lives. Things that are happening in our lives right now and things down the future that we don't even foresee. Lord, I just pray that we, like Mordecai and Esther, and see those things and that Lord we can step up in faith and do what is right even though it may be difficult maybe it be challenging to us that we can follow your lead and trust you as we walk through that so that your perfect will will be done both in heaven and on earth and through you Jesus we pray this Let's rise and receive our benediction and sing our closing song. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, your Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen. Give